Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? EU Confidential is back and we're coming to you from the Austrian Alps as part of the European Forum Alpbach. The annual gathering in this idyllic village prides itself on bringing together Europe's next generation and leaders from politics, business and civil society. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's Chief Brussels Correspondent. And today we're joined by Austria's Minister for European and International Affairs, Alexander Schallenberg. We get the minister's take on Russia's war in Ukraine, given Austria's historically neutral military position, and his views on why he believes the current efforts to enlarge the EU aren't working. We should leave behind us this kind of binary thinking we had in the past. It's either O or one. Either you're not member or you're fully member. I believe that we can have opt-ins, we can have countries being members without applying every part of their key communautaire. And later, I'll be hosting a lively panel debate about Europe's relationship with the Global South, with some distinguished voices representing Latin America, Africa and Europe. I haven't heard many say that they appreciate internationally agreed borders be redrawn unilaterally. But there is a diversity of views on other issues related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So let's introduce you to Alexander Schallenberg. Schallenberg is a longtime diplomat and politician. He had a brief stint as Chancellor of Austria back in 2021, following the resignation of Sebastian Kurz. But after just six weeks in office, Schallenberg returned to his post as Minister for Foreign Affairs, which he originally took up in 2019. The minister and I caught up in a charming wooden chalet here in Alpbach on the sidelines of the European Forum. I began by asking him about Austria's historically neutral stance and whether the war in Ukraine had made it difficult for his country to maintain this position. Yes, Austria is neutral, but only in military sense. That means, as far as Ukraine, for instance, is concerned, we don't deliver lethal equipment. We don't deliver weapons. Austria has never been neutral, never, as far as values or international law is concerned. To give you an example, we got the state treaty and we adopted ourselves on neutrality in 1955. In 1956, a year later, Soviet tanks were rolling through Budapest, crashing down the the revolution there. The young Austrian Republic supported every resolution in the General Assembly of the UN at that time and even proposed and, and tabled itself a resolution. So we were never neutral as far as values are concerned. And on Ukraine, our position is extremely clear. Because for a country like Austria, international law and the fact that countries abide and respect it is part of our security. I don't want that we don't want a system where the rule of the jungle applies. We want rule of law. And international law, Pacta Sunt Servanda as a principle, protects us. We don't have nukes. We are not a big country. 
So we need other countries, whether big or small, whether they have nuclear weapons or not, to stick to the rules. And if one country, which is permanent member of the Security Council, is a nuclear weaponized country, decides to kick out every principle of the UN Charter, we cannot and we will not stand by idly and watch it. So there's no neutrality there. And on the other side, we do more on the humanitarian front. Austria is per capita the number one provider in humanitarian aid in Ukraine, if you put public and private aid together. So we are doing exactly what we think we should do, help the Ukrainians, stand by them as long as it takes. But no, because of our constitution, we cannot deliver lethal weapons and we won't. Is there any conversation in the country about potentially joining NATO? We have a very, every country is different. If you talk to Sweden and, and if you think about Sweden and Finland, we have a very different geography and history. And Austrian neutrality still has an enormous uh, support. Over 70% of Austrians stand behind neutrality. It has kept us safe. And we shouldn't forget, Vienna is the only seat within the European Union of the United Nations. We are the seed country of the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. We have over 40 international organizations in Vienna. So this is something which is a factor too, and which we have to take into account. There is no discussion, and I would say bluntly, there's no discussion on neutrality, because in fact, as far as values are concerned, we are not. The theme of the conference is bold Europe. I mean, bold Europe. Has Europe been bold? Has it not been bold enough? I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I would say we have been very united and strong in our response in the last one and a half years after the brutal uh, war of aggression of Russia. But it was reactive. And I believe that if we want to be bold, then we have to prove it and we have to, to act uh, in our neighborhood. Our geostrategic litmus test is the neighborhood. Are we capable as European Union to export stability and security or do we run the risk of importing in the future instability and insecurity? And I'm not talking only about Ukraine and Moldova. It's right that all our eyes are turned towards the east. But Vienna is in the very center of this continent and our, you could say, geostrategic seismograph kicks out not only because of the east, 500 kilometers away from Vienna, uh, a war is raging, but uh, 500 kilometers to the south we have Western Balkans, a region which is not the backyard of Europe, it's the courtyard, it's surrounded by EU member states. And it is our prime task to secure this region as well. So I believe that this is now the moment to be bold and to change our approach to enlargement to get these countries, the six Western Balkan countries, and I'm talking about each and every one of them, and Ukraine and Moldova, clearly into our family. We have to anchor them within the European family. I mean, that's interesting what you're talking about there, that historical and geographic perspective Austria has. I mean, so many countries, the EU was a was a project that started in the West and has been gradually shifting eastwards. Um, and yet, going back to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you guys here in Austria see it differently. See these countries as, as you say, that courtyard rather than backyard. But in terms of, you know, specifics here, Europe has dragged its heels, has it not, on enlargement over the last few years? Absolutely. I mean, 20 years ago in Thessaloniki, we promised each and every country of the Western Balkans that they will become one day full members. 20 years later, nothing moved. They're not yet. And we have to acknowledge that Russia has a spoiler capacity. Russia can steer up things very easily. So... It is our task, and I believe our main task, to 
make sure that this region between Greece, Bulgaria, Romania and Croatia, which is among within the European Union, to pacify this, to stabilize uh, these countries and to actually put our money where our mouth is. We have promised them for 10, 20 years, yes, we will become members, but we have not acted accordingly. And I believe what is now needed, and I'm happy to see that many capitalists are understanding this, enlargement is not a bureaucratic endeavor. It's not a legalistic endeavor. It's not about applying each comma and paragraph of their key communautaire. It's about exporting and safeguarding a certain model of life, of free, open Western democracies, according to Charles Popper, if you may say so. And we understood that in the past. In 1981, the European communities took in Greece to safeguard a young democracy. In 1986, the same with Portugal and Spain. And Spain experienced an attempted coup d'etat five years earlier. At the time, we understood, or the communities understood, that this is necessary to make sure that these countries are part of our family of values. And we have to do the same thing now. We have to do it with Ukraine, we have to do it with Moldova, and we have to do it with Western Balkans. But we should also, if I may, leave behind us this kind of binary thinking we had in the past. It's either O or one. Either you're not member or you're fully member. I believe that we can have opt-ins. We can have countries being members without applying every part of their key communautaire. So you're talking about changing the rules of enlargement? That not really. What I'm talking about is a question of political will, not so much rules. For instance, to give you an example, after you signed your accession treaty, the tradition wants that you become observer in the council. But it is not written somewhere in the treaty that this is the case. It's simply something we adopted and developed in the course of the last decades. Why not do that now already? Why not give, for instance, in the political and security committee, where we draft our foreign policy, the possibility for certain member states um, to be already there as observers? You could say between 9 and 11 o'clock, their part, they can discuss and take part in the decision shaping, the decision making is then the EU 27. And there are other things. Why not include them in our research policy, Horizon Europe? Why not include them in the trans-European networks? Provided that they can apply the acquis communautaire in this respect and there's a minimum of judicial oversight guaranteed, why do we always say nothing is agreed until everything is agreed and until then you're not a member? We cannot wait because if we wait, we might lose these regions. We might lose Ukraine again. We might lose the Western Balkans. And this is a geostrategic thing. We have to get our act together. And for me, if you talk about a European Union understanding the language of power, a European Union being a geostrategic actor, then it is in the neighborhood we have to prove it. Not in the Middle East, not in Africa. If we fail in the neighborhood, we cannot have any cloud, any credibility to play a geostrategic role anywhere else on this planet. So do you support, for example, the next steps for Ukraine and Moldova? Leaders will be discussing that before the end of the year. Is Austria supportive of that? We are supportive. Um, and I have created before the summer a group called Friends of the Western Balkans. Because what I want to prevent is we cannot have Ukraine on the fast track and the other countries on the service line. That would be geostrategically a disaster. So what I want to prevent, to be very simplistic, I don't want a system of animal farm according to George Orwell, meaning every candidate country is equal. No, some candidate countries are more equal than others. We have to be very watchful as European Union not to create this impression in the Western Balkans. 
And to get the perspective on this issue from one of those players in the Western Balkans, tune in next week to our episode where we'll hear from Kosovo's president, Fiosa Osmani. But before Minister Schallenberg headed off to his next Alpine event, we wanted to ask him about an issue that is increasingly becoming a problem for Austria, and that's migration. Now, considering what the minister has just said about the need to expand and enlarge the EU, it's something of a paradox that Austria has been one of the countries blocking efforts by Romania and Bulgaria to join the Schengen Zone. That's the free movement area that allows people to travel freely between most, but not all, EU countries, as well as some other European countries like Norway and Switzerland. I asked the minister to explain this, why his country supports the enlargement of the EU on the one hand, but at the same time opposes extending the benefits of free movement to some EU member states. There is no contradiction whatsoever. There is simply a fact. Last year, 2022, Austria was per capita the country with the biggest burden as far as asylum seekers are concerned. 112,000 asylum applications in Austria. Per capita, that would have meant in Germany, for instance, above 1 million asylum applications. In France, above 1 million. So we are, if you look at the map, surrounded by EU member states and Switzerland and Liechtenstein, who are associated Schengen countries. So try to explain to Austrians that this system is working while Germany has border controls to Austria, while Sweden has border controls to every neighboring country, while France has border controls to Italy. Schengen is what? Schengen is people who share a common house and we agree that we kick out our apartment doors with the idea that the front door of the house is protected. And the reality is it isn't. If a country like Austria can be on the continental Europe the most affected by asylum seekers, then something is fundamentally wrong. And another fact, two-thirds, so over 75,000 of those coming to Austria were not registered anywhere else before they arrived in Austria. Why are we having a war raging 500 kilometers away, we have over 75,000 people crossing the half of the European continent arriving in Austria. This is also a security issue. So what we did was a kind of wake-up call, saying, Houston, we cannot have every two or three years a migration crisis. We're feeling alone and abandoned in this issue. And no, you cannot tell us, just agree to everything, because it's okay. It's not. It's not. And I'm happy to see that this wake-up call is yielding results. We have now an action plan on the Western Balkans by the Commission. We want to see it implemented. For the first time, we have serious discussions about having asylum application centers at the border. For the first time, the Commission is agreeing to put to fund external border controls. And I remember when Lithuania, for instance, had the problem and Lukashenko was weaponizing my migration and he was sending Iraqis in the thousands to Lithuania. It was the Lithuanian taxpayer who had to pay for the fence while actually this is keeping us all safe. I would claim that should be a policy by the European Union, funded by the European Union. But do you see it from the Bulgarian or Romanian's point of view that they feel frustrated that they can't join Schengen? I fully understand it's not directed against them, but we have the issue that 20% or whatever from those coming to Austria were actually crossing Romanian territory. Our point is, and we are actually together with them, we want Bulgaria to be supported by the 26 other countries. We cannot leave those countries who are frontline countries alone with this issue. And we see the discussion between UK and France, where the numbers are a lot less than in Austria. It already is an enormous issue. So 
We cannot look the other way. We have to confront it. It's not an easy task, but we have to, we know what has to be done. It is in the Council conclusions, and we have again and again stated in the European Council conclusions. Our problem is we see in Austria, it has been written down, nothing happened. And every couple of years, we have a crisis. And you know what the problem is with migration crisis, or with migration? It's an issue of concernedness. You open the newspaper and you see, okay, Italy has a problem. Oh, gosh, poor guys. The next year, it's Spain. Oh, gosh. And then it's Austria. Oh, gosh. And the others don't do anything because they're not affected. And as long as this goes on like that, we make the business for the human traffickers. And we should be very harsh. We have to increase our external border controls. We have to make sure that we have asylum application centers at the border. We should even think about having those in third countries. So there are things to be done. And what we need is the political awareness and willingness to do so. It cannot go on that countries like Austria again and again affected. It's undermining, you know, the support for European integration in these countries. That was Austria's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Alexander Schallenberg. But do stay with us because right after this short break, we'll be joined by an all-star panel discussing Europe's relationship with the so-called Global South and whether it's heading in the right direction. Stay with us. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A message from EPRA. In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU Commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, Listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth, and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe. Russia's war in Ukraine has triggered geopolitical challenges that were unthinkable until recently. It has challenged our approach to everything from energy supply and food security to defence and democratic values. For much of Europe and the West, you could argue that it's been a unifying moment. Countries have worked together to implement coordinated policies on sanctions and military support, for example. But not everyone in the world has been on board with these actions. Many countries in the so-called Global South have refused to take sides in this war. Did Europe take for granted support from countries in Africa, Latin America and elsewhere? And is there still a chance to convince some countries to support the West's approach to Russia's war? I brought together a star cast to discuss exactly these issues 
First, we'll hear from Maria Fernanda Espinosa Garces, an Ecuadorian diplomat, scientist and politician and former president of the United Nations General Assembly. Next up, we'll hear from Arantxa González Lea, Spain's former foreign minister and now dean of the Paris School of International Affairs at Sciences Po. And finally, Obi Isquesili, former Minister for Education and Minister of Mineral Resources of Nigeria and Senior Economic Advisor of the Africa Economic Development Policy Initiative. I caught up with them just after finishing a lively session here at the European Forum Alpac on the question of how to rethink the West relations with the quote-unquote Global South. Maria, maybe we'll start with you. Do you think there's a, an unbridgeable divide now between the West and the Global South, particularly as it comes to Ukraine? Well, when you see the voting patterns at the UN, the, the several resolutions within the Security Council and in the General Assembly, basically what you see is not that countries do not understand what the Charter says or what international law says. It's basically saying we are unhappy with the ways northern countries are behaving in so many other fronts and we need to rethink the system we need to rethink the ways you know we establish partnerships we have to relate to each other as equals we have an agenda and we need support for that agenda the financing for development the climate finance where is the money for climate adaptation and mitigation for the global south for example where is the low carbon technology transfer for developing countries where is the digital divide that is taking half of the population of the south outside they are offline still you know the hundreds of thousands of people that do not have electricity these are the kinds of discussions we need to transform and change the international financial architecture we need debt restructuring and relief for example these are the discussions that would allow to build trust, to heal polarization, and to really have some common ground. Arancha said, you know, it is about climate change, for example. It is about agreeing on how to govern our commons, the atmosphere, oceans, peace as a global commons, for example. I think that the future of this partnership has to be about establishing mechanisms to govern our commons. I mean, Arantxa, there's been a lot of talk about Europe trying to get, and the West trying to get the Global South on board when it comes to Ukraine. I mean, what's gone wrong here? Do you think there is a, a gulf now on this whole issue of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? And do you think the West kind of took for granted the support of the so-called Global South on this? I think, uh, first of all, that there is no such thing as the Global South. What we have is now a multitude of countries that have agency and have their capacity to decide, and they are deciding on the basis of their interests. Now, some of them are, I mean, I haven't heard for a start many say that they appreciate that internationally agreed borders be redrawn unilaterally. But there is a diversity of views on other issues related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, like, for example, whether or not to impose sanctions, and so on and so forth. And there, countries are exercising agency. Some are saying, basically, they are expressing grievances that they have, past grievances, or more recent grievances, like uh, the management of COVID. Uh, some uh, are basically 
They don't want to take sides. They don't want to be put in a position where they've got to choose because they know that maybe after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there is China and its rivalry with the US and they've got, uh, they prefer not to have to be put in a position to choose. For whichever motive, I think beyond Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we do have an issue of international cooperation that is very obvious. And it's now getting to a point where, on the one side, the problems of international cooperation are accumulating. We've just heard about climate change, biodiversity, sustainability. We've got poverty eradication, which we haven't achieved yet. Uh, we've got peace and security issues that are rising uh, higher and higher on the agenda. We've got financial equity, access to financial means, the reform of the international financial system. So the problems are growing on the international cooperation side and the ability of the international community to come together to solve them is diminishing. So I think what we now need is an extra effort and I hope Europe will be on the side of taking an extra effort because for Europe international cooperation is not ideological, it's a necessity. Obi, do you feel that Europe uh, has taken for granted the support of Africa for too long? Yes, it, it has. I mean, it's evident. Uh, you almost uh, feel like there's this outrage that the Africans uh, decided not to be on the same wavelength with us on all matters that matter to us. And I think that that's where they got it wrong. I believe that any day, any day, majority Africans have a greater affinity to actually the values that Europe subscribes to, the whole Western model of democracy. So whether it's openness, it's freedom, it's uh, uh, justice and all of that. But they hold Europe accountable for a poor practice of those values. So this disconnect between liking Europe for the openness, I mean, democracy means we can tell what's going on in Spain, we can see what's going on in France, we follow it. It's, and you know they, there are institutions that enable you to at least know who is accountable for what. That's different from what you see in say China or Russia. And so for some majority Africans the model where there is that openness is more attractive. However, it annoys Africans that Europe cannot even work its own values a lot of the times. The inconsistency of, you know, contexts being different and then you basically walk back on your values. It has confused Africans about the West. And so if you have a situation where the West wants Africa to be by its side, on issues of values, Europe would need to clean the slate of all the inconsistencies that have been the basis of grievances, past, present, and possibly future, clean the slate. And cleaning the slate means that you have to be at the table, basically, unpacking all the issues and having a truthful conversation. I don't think that Europe has wanted a truthful conversation with Africa. 
and in the absence of a truthful, candid conversation, you would find that all of these misunderstandings and divides would make it difficult for the continents that should most collaborate to do so. And I want to end on the note that Europe does a disservice to itself by not realizing that when we have China and Russia on the one hand and America on the, the US on the other hand, just trying to throw the, drag the world in different, in these two different, you know, asinine great power competition, that Europe can take a place in this conversation, not alone, but taking Africa as a partner, as an equal partner, and being able to shape the direction of what our universal principles and mechanisms for solving our global problems can be. Something new is on the offing, but it will not happen until Europe actually respects and partners with Africa on the basis of mutuality of interest. So I want to uh, end uh, where uh, Obi leaves it, maybe giving a bit more of a positive perspective. I think the last Africa-EU summit went exactly in that direction. This is what European but also African leaders recognize. They need to build a partnership from a different perspective, build it as a partnership, not uh, as a uh, a superior and an inferior partner, as it had been for a long time, whether advertently or inadvertently. I think this process has started. Clearly, there is a lot to catch up with because history of misunderstandings and grievances is long. But I want to end on a positive note because I think this is at least uh, what I see uh, being the spirit on both the African and the European side. The more positive note is to say that the women of Europe and the women of Africa have found themselves. I the young people of Europe and the young people of Africa have found themselves. They are collaborating. They are working together. Their governments are stumbling blocks to this. But don't leave behind Latin America. You just mentioned, you know, Brussels was the place for a summit between the European Union and Latin America after eight years, you know, of distance and silence in a way. And uh, for me, the main outcome is not the final communique, which is a good one, but was the process. And I, I have to say firsthand, because I, I was actively engaged in preparing for the summit, you know, having civil society, women's organizations, think tanks, universities, the private sector coming together to heal and to meet again to design a collective agenda of collaboration, of dialogue amongst equals, that just happened. Of course, the media, they don't speak a lot about that because it's not, uh, you know, scandalous or, or a, you know, a big sensation. But you had almost every single head of state and government of Latin America and the Caribbean going to Brussels to have a genuine conversation, an equal conversation among partners. And I have to say, we did cover it on EU Confidential, uh, the responsible journalism that we do. Uh, but Maria Fernanda Espinaza Garza, thanks very much uh, for those thoughts, rounding up those discussions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And a big thanks to Maria Arancha and Obi for sharing those insights with our audience. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. 
Just a reminder that we'll be coming to you from now on on Friday mornings. So please do follow us wherever you're listening to make sure you don't miss an episode. Thanks this week to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, here with me in Alpac. We'll be back in Brussels next week for our rentrée back into the bubble. See you then. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.